A national shortage of baby formula has parents and caregivers anxious about being able to feed their babies in South Florida. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Hernandez is out today. We hear from the CEO for Holtz Children's Hospital in Miami and a mom in Broward County helping link parents and caregivers to resources and each other. But first, we look at the ongoing property insurance crisis in Florida and what state lawmakers are trying to do to address some of the issues this week. And then a retired naval ship was intentionally sunk to help a coral reef in the Keys. We'll speak with the longtime Keys diver to get an update on a shipwreck two decades later. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from the Miami Cancer Institute. Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Hernandez is out today. Homeowners in Florida are paying the price in this property insurance crisis. From significant rate increases to canceled policies, that could lead to thousands of dollars in repairs. State lawmakers are meeting for a special session this week. They are introducing a number of proposals to help homeowners and relieve the insurance industry. Earlier this morning, I spoke with Lawrence Maurer. He's a Tallahassee correspondent for the Tampa Bay Times. He was in the Capitol on his way to committee meetings for the session. There are many factors that have led to the property insurance crisis in Florida. What are some of the factors that sent out to you? You know, insurance companies have been blaming a rise in lawsuits and litigation and roofing fraud. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have gotten people going door to door, uh, contractors soliciting to uh, replace people's roofs. You know, they say all you have to do is file an insurance claim, you get a free roof. Um, they blame it on that. Uh, they, they blame it on fraud. Uh, but there's really a lot of reasons about what's going on here. One, one thing, the legislature has just kind of ignored this entire topic uh, for s- several years in a row now. Uh, they, did, they have passed some modest changes to the state's insurance laws uh, in recent years, but they haven't really taken a holistic view of it. Um, there, there's other issues at play here, too. Um, the Office of Insurance Regulation and uh, the Department of Financial Services, which they both regulate insurance, they've got probably half the staff of their counterparts in Texas, which you know has fewer domestic insurers than Florida does. That's been a real problem. I mean, the, the state regulators here are facing more and more complicated rate requests, bigger rate requests. I mean, insurers are requesting um, you know, some of them are requesting triple digit, you know, 111% rate increases. Um, and regulators have to uh, deal with that. They're also having to monitor, um, you know, a, a number of companies that are on the verge of insolvency. There's at least half a dozen or so insurance companies that are basically could go under any day now. And the Office of Insurance Regulation is spending a lot of resources keeping a close eye on them. And, so, and let's talk about that. Um, when property insurers become insolvent, you know, fail to keep up with the demands, does it have a broad impact on the property insurance industry as a whole? Well, it certainly can. Um, when an insurance company goes under, it's taken over by um, the Department of Financial Services and the Florida Insurance Guarantee Association basically pays out any outstanding claims for this company. And sometimes that requires them to levy an assessment 
on everyone's insurance policy, regardless of if you own a home or not. Uh, it can apply to pretty much any insurance policy, and they've levied a 1.3% uh, charge onto everyone's premium uh, within the last year, and they also levied a 0.7% uh, charge onto everyone's premium last year for two other in, in, insurers that went insolvent. So yeah, it can have a huge impact on people's rates. Hmm. And, and Lawrence, state lawmakers met at a property insurance session Friday uh, to address some of the issues in the industry. Uh, what were some of the proposed plans that stood out to you? Well, they announced it uh, on Friday, but Friday night, but they're actually not meeting until today. Uh, the Senate meets today, House meets tomorrow, and they're expected to pass this stuff this week. Um, really the highlight, or, or the, the main thing that your listeners probably care about, is that they're, they're basically trying to address this issue, this problem with roofing. Um, you know, with all these roofing claims that have been filed and kind of these fraudulent roofers going around, insurers have been basically refusing to insure anyone with an older roof. And, you know, some of these roofs they're refusing to insure are ten, only 10 years old, some of them even five years old. And so this is a major problem where, you know, homeowners are having to pay you know, tens of thousands of dollars in some cases to replace the roofs just so they can get covered. And so what lawmakers are proposing is that if you have a roof that's less than 15 years old, uh, an insurance company cannot deny you coverage just because of that. Now, and, and is that on the special agenda for today as well? Yeah, that's going to be talked about today. Um, and if you have a roof that's older than 15 years, 15 years or older, um, you can have somebody come out and inspect it and say, well, this roof still has five years of life left in it. And you, basically, the insurer cannot refuse you just for that. Now, that's the catch here, of course. It, they're saying they can't refuse you coverage solely because of this. Now, if they find that there's a tree branch taken over your roof they don't like or you know, whatever other reasons they come up with, they can still deny you coverage. But that's, that's meant to remedy a, a short-term uh, or an immediate um, problem here, which is that more and more people are finding that they're they're really out of luck just getting coverage at all and uh so that's one of the main things they're also putting a bunch of limits on attorney's fees and lawsuits that's what they want to do um they're allowing floridians to receive up to ten thousand dollars for home hardening improvements basically for every two dollars a homeowner would spend on home hardening improvements they would get a dollar um or excuse me they would for every one dollar they spend they get two dollars back um, from the state and so that could be a, a kind of a short-term remedy here too. But the main question, of course, is will this reduce rates for people? You know, everybody, pretty much no matter where you are, you're seeing big rate increases uh, on, your, on your homeowner's insurance. And so far, it seems like you're probably not gonna get uh, much meaningful savings here, at least not in the short term. I'm speaking with Lawrence Maurer. He's a Tallahassee correspondent for the Tampa Bay Times. We're talking about what to expect during the special legislative session going on this week. Lawmakers are once again at the Capitol to discuss and vote on bills related to the rising cost of property insurance in Florida. You can read Lawrence's work and find out more on our social media at WLRN Sundial. <laughs> These are short-term proposals a band-aid of sorts for something that may require surgery. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. As we head into hurricane season, are lawmakers implementing any new checks and balances? How will the state regulate the insurance industry moving forward? Um, it, well, they're not making a whole lot of fixes to that. Um, one thing they are doing is they are saying that, you know, if you're denied a claim 
or paid a claim or partially paid a claim that the insurer has to give you a reason in writing. That's a big change. That's a significant one. I don't know if it's going to do anything for your rates, but um, they are trying to do that. They also are, there's about a, you know, like I said, about a half a dozen companies here uh, that are on the verge of insolvency and they're having trouble finding reinsurance. This is what basically insurance that insurance companies buy sure. uh, ahead of storm season. And they are off they're, they're creating a $2 billion fund for these companies to buy reinsurance ahead of storm season. And this reinsurance would pay out for her, you know, hurricanes, basically named storms. Um, this is probably not going to be enough to save these companies. though. these companies are facing a problem of finding all, all kinds of reinsurance, not just for, for, the major storms, and so there, uh, there, there's a big question about whether or not this will actually help them or not. In your report, you noted a specific instance where an insurance company has had a conflict of interest with affiliated companies, which included financial mismanagement from people in high positions of power. Uh, what did you find, and how much of an impact that has had on the industry as a whole? Well, yeah, I, I reported last week that there's a state law called insolvency of insurers, and it basically requires the state to study why an insurance company fails. There have been a bunch of companies that have gone insolvent over the last decade. And, you know, this is a major question. Like, are we learning from these experiences? Like, why are these companies actually going under? You know, insurance companies blame litigation. They blame all these things. But when when these companies actually fail, the state does an autopsy, a financial autopsy, to figure out what went wrong. And so I reported that basically these companies uh, or these these reports essentially never get read. Um, and you know nobody really was aware of these that these reports existed. And so you know the, on Friday the state released a bunch of reports on these companies after my reporting, and the, these reports are pretty consistent in showing that what's going on here for some of these companies at least is that the owners of these companies are basically siphoning money they're they're creating affiliate companies that siphon money out of the insurer you know they that in state in, in state law you know companies are basically allowed to um to create have affiliate companies that charge the insurance company for various services hmm. now these fees are often considered uh we found out now bogus uh, when these companies go under, these the reports that get written uh, about why these companies failed found that these fees are totally bogus, going to you know executive compensation um, for uh, services that may not even be needed. Wow! Uh, in in many cases, these these fees are not approved by the state. They're required to be filed and approved by the state, and they're not. Thinking about the meetings you're running to, uh, what is on the agenda for today? Two bills are starting to be considered. Can you help us? just briefly clarify those yeah there's two bills um one of them is dealing with uh roofing issues and it basically says that um it, you know under the building code you have to if you have a serious damage to your roof you have to replace it your roof you don't uh this would change the law so that if it's like 25 percent damage you can just repair the damage as opposed to uh replacing the roof that's one bill uh the other bill is this kind of overall wrap-up package about um, the property insurance system overall. I mean, this is dealing with the attorney's fees. This is dealing with um, creating this $2 billion fund for uh, reinsurance for insurance companies. Um, so it's basically a, a grab bag of different 
uh, fixes that, you know, while they could be good in the short term and they may reduce rates in the long term, it doesn't look like they're going to reduce rates in the short term. Hmm. And would we know by now if the governor wanted to slip uh, a different issue or another topic into this week's special session? Well, there's been rumors about that, but nothing announced. Um, it doesn't look like that might happen. I mean, who knows? Um, of course, the, during the last special session, they went, they took a look at Disney and their Disney special tax exempt status. And in this case, they're, they're, there's various rumors going around, but we've not seen anything other than insurance be on the agenda so far. That was Lawrence. That was reporter Lawrence Maurer. He's a Tallahassee correspondent for the Tampa Bay Times. You can find more of the latest on this story on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Still to come, how parents and caregivers across South Florida are looking for creative solutions to the baby formula shortage. Welcome to Sundown on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Hernandez is out today. A national shortage of baby formula has parents and caregivers in South Florida anxious about being able to feed their babies. This crisis has been looming for months. Nearly half of all formulas are out of stock. It's a mix of pandemic supply chain issues and a closure of a big production plant due to a voluntary recall earlier this year. The federal government is working to increase production. The first overseas shipment of formula arrived in the U.S. yesterday. Still, it's unclear when things will get better. We are joined now by Joanne Ruggiero. She's the CEO of Holtz Children's Hospital in Miami. Joanne, how are you? Good, how are you? Hopefully I didn't butcher your last name. (laughs) No, you didn't. You did not. Uh, uh, Joanne, Jackson Health System put out a statement saying that the hospitals has a supply that's adequate at the moment and are not experiencing a shortage. Is this national shortage something you saw coming? How did Jackson avoid being affected by this? Yeah, so just like with all other health uh, care supply chains, we have been very proactive um, in the last few months looking at all of our supply chain, but most critical here at the Women and Children's Hospital, um, looking at our formula, um, looking at where our trends were going for births and being able to work with our supply chain um, groups to ensure that we um, were really estimating correctly how much we were going to need. Um, and as of this morning, you know, we were checking every morning, we're not reporting any shortages within the hospital. Hmm. And do the hospitals have a longer term plan in case this shortage doesn't resolve soon? I mean, you know, our plan has always been to work with all of our um, vendors and and to just ensure that every baby is getting the proper feeding um, here in the hospital. And so, you know, the myriad of formulas that can go from just, you know, normal well baby formula to um, the formulas that we would give in our neonatal care units. Um, it's just very important for us to constantly stay on top of and look at this. And that's what we've been doing, again, not only with formula, but with all of our supply chain issues. I see. We're hearing from our listeners on social media. Carissa Vicario on Facebook says, quote, I didn't find any of my baby's brand and was down to the end of my supply after trading diapers for new cans. I was legit driving around in tears, praying this end soon. 
Carissa also shared that she's on the Women, Infants, and Children's Federal Nutrition Program, which subsidizes formula for parents in need. So she had to go through them to make the purchase, waiting half an hour on hold on the phone once she found some cans for formula of formula after trying multiple stores. You can also share your experience or send us your questions on social media at WLRN Sundial or text us at 786-677-0767. Again, that's 676-677-0767. I'm sorry. Um, Joanne, you, you think about the shortage and issues with access, financial, transportation, etc. What conversations are you having with parents and caregivers who are experiencing the effects of this shortage? Our main message, and, and even uh, in, in my personal life, it's just really been encouraging our parents to reach out to their pediatricians early on if they are really foreseeing any challenges with getting the formula that their baby is on. Of course, the more challenging formulas, formulas for babies who are on specialty formulas, are, are much harder to get um, during the shortage than perhaps um, our regular formula that we would give most babies. And it's just really important that before a parent would make a decision to either change their formula or subsidize their formula, that they would just have a conversation with the pediatrician um, who can help them navigate that and allow them to avoid the added stress of maybe not knowing if this formula is okay to give their, their baby. You know, should they be feeding their baby this? Um, so those conversations are really important to have early on, um, perhaps before we get to the end of being so stressed. Hmm. And you're, you're right about just the amount of stress that's in the air right now. Uh, some children around the country have been hospitalized as a result of the formula shortage. What are the worries that come with babies not getting the formula they need? Improper nutrition for a baby is always an area of concern. And, you know, perhaps as, um, you know, the foundation of care, even when we're discharging babies from the hospital newborns, that is something that we always focus on. And it's been something that we have always had a focus on in maternal health. You know, my background is that I'm a maternal health nurse. And even when I was discharging babies from the hospital, always reminding parents not to, you know, add extra water to the formula. Don't subsidize the formula with anything. And, and that, you know, is extremely important. So we always worry about improper nutrition for children because nutrition is such an important part of brain functionality and growth for the baby. Hmm. Um, this is this may come off as a broad question, but uh, this is a shortage that have been building up for months now. Do you think it could have been prevented? I, I don't know that answer. Um, you know, I, I certainly can appreciate working in healthcare um, and having to face a variety of different supply shortages throughout this time. Um, and and I truly believe that everyone is doing the best that they can to help mitigate everything that's coming towards us. Now, Jackson Health System hospital, uh, hospitals are uh, designated baby-friendly. Uh, what does that designation entail? So baby-friendly uh, designation is really looking at, from the moment that a child is born, several factors to, to really promote maternal and neonatal um, uh, 
bonding. And one of those things is around breastfeeding. And uh, we have specialized breastfeeding lactation consultants, and we do a lot of work around reducing maternal neonatal separation so that we can promote maternal bonding, which then really promotes lactation. And it sets mom up for success when she's being discharged to the hospital to promote lactation. We have a lactation line um, that we encourage moms to reach out if they get home and they're having uh, trouble breastfeeding. So it really is a way for us to support um, that bonding with a special focus on breastfeeding. And, and just for, and just to clarify for folks who may not understand, what, what are those specialized lactation consultants? So lactation consultants are uh, uh, healthcare professionals who really spend um all of their career focusing on helping moms to achieve um, successful breastfeeding. Um, they are specially trained. They are required to uh, do a certain amount of hours of training in order to become lactation consultants. They're required to do an internship in the hospital. And their sole employment here at our hospital is all around assisting moms with breastfeeding. I'm speaking with Joanne Ruggiero. She's a CEO for Holtz Children's Hospital in Miami. We're talking about the national baby formula shortage that has parents and caregivers scrambling to feed their babies. You can find the latest on this story on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Now, Joanne, what, what support is out there for moms who are interested in breastfeeding to offset the effects of this shortage? For sure, there's been a lot of questions um, about, you know, if mom went home uh, with her baby and the baby's two months old, can she relactate? Um, from, from a Jackson Health System perspective, again, we really have this lactation line, this breastfeeding line um, that when you call, we promise to either answer on the spot or get back to you um, with a certified lactation consultant who will answer your questions. And I think that it's really important during a time of high stress as much as you can to lean on the experts to help you through this. Um, and, and certainly from our perspective, that is a resource that we would like to offer our community. And you mentioned during this time of high, high stress, uh, of course, we know for many reasons there are mothers and families who choose not to breastfeed or don't have breastfeeding as an option, what advice do you have for them if they can't find the formula they need? Really consultant with the pediatrician. The pediatrician can help you make decisions about what formula is safe to transfer your baby to. Um, you know, that is the most important advice I can give at this time, because we want to make sure that whatever substitution you make, that it is safe for your baby. Hmm. And is using someone else's breast milk, uh, donor breast milk, an option? That, that would not be an option that I would support, um, especially anyone's breast milk who has not gone through you know, the proper uh, channels of, of having that breast milk ready to be donor breast milk. There are national breast milk banks that you can work with. They tend to be very expensive. Um, but using someone else's breast milk without going through that process, um, I, I personally would not recommend that. Right. And that, and that echoes the same sentiment from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, yes. uh, who says more informal milk swaps can be dangerous. Uh, parents might not be aware of what's in the milk or what the donor is consuming that can have effects on the milk. Um, so, yeah, you echo the same sentiment. Let's talk about DIY, do-it-yourself uh, formula. 
there is something that the FDA and other national health organizations strongly advise against. Uh, what are the dangers of attempting to make your own formula at home? You know, I think it's the um, the same sentiments as um, as the previous question you asked me about um, donor breast milk, right? Um, trying to make your own formula at home, again, outside of the advice of a pediatrician would be something that I would recommend to get. Um, it's important that you really understand, right? So if your baby's on a soy formula because maybe they're lactose intolerant, it's important that as you are trying to make this home ingredient that you understand that everything that goes into that. Um, and, and new moms, you know, we're busy. We're, you know, trying to um, struggle every day just to, you know, get the baby together and get ourselves together. And most of us really don't have that, you know, understanding of everything that's inside of all the ingredients. And so it's just really important to just take a minute, breathe, reach out to your pediatrician and make sure that you're getting the best advice for you and your baby. Uh, you said new moms are busy. I have four sisters, three of whom have children, and I've seen that firsthand. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes there is this urge to overshop, uh, to hoard, but that can actually make the problem worse. Uh, what advice do you have for parents shopping for formulas? How much should they have in their possession? Yeah, that's actually a really good point um, because that often exacerbates a problem, you know, and and I would necessarily say to, to have enough to where you're comfortable. And I know that that's different for everybody. I'd hate to say have enough for seven days and then you don't find any. Um, but it is really important not to overbuy unless you're overbuying with the intent to give to someone else. You know, for sure, if you're at the store and, and you find something and you and your friend need it, um, definitely overbuy to share. But to overbuy to have extra really exacerbates the situation. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the toilet issue in the early stages of the pandemic. It does. It does. <laughs> yeah, I actually said that to someone today. I was like, oh, no, I hope we don't get back to that. Right. 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 And, and one thing that the pandemic, one silver lining uh, of the pandemic is that, you know, it, it, it brings up the topics around surrounding the village, right? Talking about the story mm -hmm. and hearing from the families experiencing this shortage has made me think about the village and that it takes to help new mothers and new parents. Uh, you think about the past and it really was literally a village. Things are different now though. Uh, do you think new parents have that quote unquote village they need nowadays? Is it missing or does it just look different with technology? You know, I think that um, it, the, the answer to that, and I hate to give an ambu ambu ambiguous answer, excuse me, but it's both. I think there are some parents who have figured out different ways to create that village, whether it be through social media mom groups um, or whether it be through, you know, the different applications that you can have now. Um, and certainly we know that when we're within that village and we're all helping each other and um, we come out stronger and we really, you know, kind of get out to the other side supporting each other. But then we can't ignore that there are moms that don't have that village. And, and we know um, all of the issues that we face in society. And, and it's important for those moms that if we know a mom who, who you know doesn't have that village, that during this time we would reach out and we would you know be that source of strength for them. Um, because while I certainly think that the avenues are there to have a village, 
I also um, am not blind to the fact that not everybody has the access to have that village. Right, right. I, I remember leaving the hospital uh, with my sister and she was just kind of a bit nervous about leaving. Uh, lastly, what, what's the hospital doing to prepare new moms and parents leaving the hospital with a newborn in the midst of this crisis? Yeah, and we're doing a, a lot of teaching. We actually met with our groups, you know, uh, when we when this started to come out and, you know, just really empowering our nurses. So all of our nurses do standard education um, when moms are leaving, uh, parents are leaving with their baby. And we've actually, you know, just met with them and just said, you know, let's just make sure to reiterate, um, you know, this no adding extra milk, no making your own formula talking to your pediatrician. Um, and really it's about being that source of strength for our community um, and having them know that they can always reach back out when they need us. A source of strength for the community. I'm speaking with Joanne Regario. She's the CEO of Holtz Children's Hospital in Miami. We're talking about the national baby formula shortage. The federal government is working to increase production, shipping formula from overseas, and the production plant that closed earlier this year is set to reopen in June. Joanne, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. We now turn to Catherine Quirk from Broward County. She started a local Facebook group for parents to help each other find baby formula. You can find a link to that group and more of the latest on this story on our social media at WLRN Sundown. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm great. How are you? All is well. Staying hydrated. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Uh, When did you realize that there was a need in the community for a Facebook group like this one? So really, um, we were watching the news, my husband and I, and really learning more about the shortage. I'm a nurse myself, and I had heard about the shortage, but I don't think I really understood or recognized the magnitude of it. Um, So it was about a week ago, and we were talking about the issue. And at that point, you know, kind of went back to our days when we started our vaccine group on Facebook that it really led us to think, you know, what what could we do here? And it seemed like we already had the blueprint with the vaccine group. So it just seemed like a logical step to do what we know best, which is to turn to Facebook and to create a group that could help um, on the social media aspect. Hmm. And how, how are mothers and parents using this online community space? Um, any anecdotal stories that you have? Yeah, so the group started to grow pretty quickly. Um, It is, you know, a combination of new moms, um, moms of babies, caregivers. And really what has been done there is um, there's certainly a lot of mothers helping other mothers, um, especially in the situation where a mom might go to a store and she's able to find her own formula or not find her own formula, but either way, she'll take a picture of the availability and post it in the group. I've also seen a lot of mothers or caregivers posting samples that they've received, unopened sample cans that they've received, and explaining that it was a formula that either didn't work for their baby or a sample that they were given that they are not using, and either you know offering it just to give um, to help another mother or asking if perhaps someone else has a different kind of formula to swap. Um, I've seen people out of the goodness of their heart just joining the group and people that are really talented searching um, the internet and looking at walmart.com or any of the other stores online 
and alerting these mothers, parents, caregivers when when uh, formula becomes available. Hmm. And, and um, Catherine, this isn't your first time leading a group like this one. Uh, during the pandemic, you did something similar with vaccines, right? Yes. So we did have the South Clor- South Florida COVID-19 vac- vaccine info group. Um, and same sort of concept really was started at the beginning of the vaccine movement. And it grew um, to over 40,000 members where we really in the beginning were helping seniors get vaccine appointments um, and really trying to help them navigate the online system of booking vaccines. This seems to be uh, a model now. What did you learn from that Facebook group that you're now applying to this one focused on baby formula? So what we learned was that we had a really solid uh, blueprint and that really when you give the community an opportunity to help each other, the community comes together. And I, you know, we saw that so much with the vaccine group. The vaccine group, of course, grew, you know, very quickly and and many, many, many people needing a lot of help. Um, But, you know, what we saw was that there were so many people in that group that were willing to help. Um, and that, you know, we could really make it a place to connect on many different levels. Um, with the vaccine group, it was more about connecting seniors with maybe a volunteer that might help them secure a vaccine appointment. This time around, it's mothers that, you know, tend to be very, very uh, dedicated, dedicated to getting what they need and resourceful and really um, being willing to help each other, right. and you know, the same people that have jumped into that jumped in to help with the vaccine group are also, you know, crossing over to the baby formula group just to help in any way possible. A, a lot of ca- a lot of connection, a lot of resourcefulness. <laughs> what feedback yes. have you gotten from parents on how this group has impacted them? The feedback that we've gotten is great. I mean, there's so many parents that are able to find what they need, um, you know, in whatever aspect, whether it's the photo that's posted um, by somebody else about availability at a grocery store, or if it's just another mother that might be able to, um, you know, give that extra can um, and, and help. It's, it's really amazing. I mean, we've seen mothers that are very grateful that they've been able to find what they need. You know, it's a, it's an ongoing challenge. So, you know, just because they find the can the one week, it doesn't mean that, you know, in five days or three days when they need another, that they're not going to be coming back. But at least we have this uh, central location where uh, they are able to, to see what's available out there without, you know, necessarily having to pack their baby up and go to the grocery store. They they can see what's available at the local target if somebody posts a picture of it. Hmm. What have these experiences taught you about community and people coming together in times of need? You know, we uh, early we talked about the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Um, we look at the past and that village was so literal. Uh, do you think this village still exists today? Does it just look different? I, I do. I think that, um, you know, I, I think that in these times of crisis, the greatest thing that we have is community. And I think that when there are mothers or senior citizens or people in general in crisis, if somebody else can reach out a hand and whatever that hand may look like, right? Like in our case, it's it's virtual and it's social media and it's a group. I think it feels good for the people out there to be able to help because a lot of times 
we don't really know how we can help as an as a normal individual. Um, you know, somebody working in healthcare, that's what we do. We're we're always in that mode of helping. But for individuals in the community to feel like they can do something that helps. I mean, even just like I said, going to your local grocery store when you're perusing the aisles for what you need and just snapping a photo and posting in our group, you never know who you're going to help. And something that I have always said is so important to me personally is that if I can just help one person in starting these groups, that's that's all that's all that's important, you right. know, and and that has been seen with both of them. So and, and, and Catherine. And, and I know we think of dedicated moms and parents who might be able to search um, at different stores or drive from place to place. What about the parents who maybe don't have those resources or that time right. because they're working or uh, working multiple jobs? How can this group help them? Uh, so in that case, I, I mean, you know, that's always something that I'm thinking about. And I always think beyond that, like what what could we do better that could help even the parents that aren't on social media, you know, or that have even limited resources to computers. You know, I wish that we could come up with something that could help everybody. But with with those that do have the social media that are working, they can always go on and post a photo of what they need, specifically the kind of formula formula that they need and ask for help. You know, that that's what we do. That's what we're trying to do here. And you know, hopefully what, what happens is that maybe somebody goes to a store and sees the formula and can maybe pick it up for them or can, you know, say that they have the formula and, and they can figure out a way to connect, um, you know, or, or just, you know, be alerted when it becomes available online. I'd like to thank our guest, Catherine Quirk. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. She started a local Facebook group for parents to help each other find baby formula. That Facebook group is now called the South Florida Baby Formula Info Group. It has more than 650 members now. You can find a link to that group and more of the latest on this story on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Still to come, there was a shipwreck in the Keys 20 years ago, but it was intentional? Welcome back to Sundown on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Luis Hernandez is out today. It's been 20 years since a retired naval ship was intentionally sunk in the Keys. The Spiegel Grove was submerged in order to create a new coral reef for divers. Coral thrives on the steel structures that ships provide. It's much larger than any natural reefs in the Keys. Rob Blesser is a longtime diver in the Keys, and he recently dove back down to the shipwreck to commemorate the anniversary. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Rob, can you hear me? Hello, hello. Hey, there we go. Hey, Rob, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Hey, how are you? I'm doing fine. Who am I speaking to? Oh, this is Wilkin Brutus. Hello, Wilkin. How are you doing today? All, all is well. All is well. Um, yeah, so I'm in, I'm in for Luis Hernandez for the show today. Uh, let, let's go directly into your story. Uh, take me back 20 years ago. I got to hear the story of what happened. This sinking was intentional, but it also didn't sink according to plan, right? That is correct. It was, uh, it was a minor part of the plan that the possibility was that the ship was going to either land on its side. That was a one in six chance. And there was a small chance the ship was going to turtle like it did. It was a 510-foot uh, 
and is a 510-foot ship that was designed to sink and still stay afloat. So we really couldn't have picked a more difficult ship to try to sink, actually. And Rob, what do you remember... What do you remember when it happened? What what was the diving community watching for or, or saying at the time? Well, what we had was we had uh, uh, we had a lot of uh, official people on the on the vessel. We had sixty volunteers. Uh, a lot of them were made up of the diving community. We had a sinking plan that was designed by um, a naval architect, marine engineer, and it was followed to the letter. And it actually went very very well all the way up until the point of uh, losing the uh, after uh, the, the back wall or the back that back structure of the after engine room. And once that started to flood, that's when the ship went down prematurely, and then the current got in the way, caused it to be unstable, and it rolled over. Wow. Now, Rob, we know that there's a lot of reasons why corals and coral reefs are dying. There's illness and disease, and rising water temperatures contribute are shipwrecks and artificial reefs like what the Spiegel, uh, the Spiegel Grove is doing, is that the future of keeping these reefs going? It certainly is an advantage, and hopefully uh, more into the future. Uh, there are so many ships that are available that are sitting, rotting, being, uh, being cared for, trying to keep them afloat up in the James River fleet, especially the military ships. And there's so much opportunity to get them on the bottom and uh, creating those artificial reefs that uh, allow for additional growth, allow for fish growth, and take some pressure off of the reefs themselves. I think another fascinating element about the story is Hurricane Dennis. What role did Hurricane Dennis play in this artificial reef back in 2005? Well, when we first put the Spiegel Grove Grove in its original resting place, it was laying um, pointing 065 degrees on its side. And with the current flowing out there, the normal current at about 45 degrees, it actually dug a trench behind the ship that was about 12 feet deep. Once Hurricane Dennis came by, it actually went below Cuba, but it pushed an underwater tsunami, if you will, along the edge of the Gulf Stream, right up the edge of the Keys, and caught the well deck, of, which is like a cup, caught the well deck of the Spiegel and simply just pushed it over, into that into that trench and actually landed it so that it was almost uh, perfect in its level and it's uh, no list to it at all. Unbelievable. So Hurricane Dennis actually contributed to it. Wow. Uh, what did it mean to you to be able to go back 20 years later and visit? I'm, I'm wondering what you were expecting versus what you actually experienced this time around. Well, you know, we, we dive it every day, uh, at least my operation does, uh, almost every day. There's many dive shops that dive it. And you can't, you can dive it a hundred times and not see all of it. But uh, it's it's just been a phenomenal, phenomenal asset to both the community and to the, uh, to the ecological uh, aspect of it uh, on the outer reef line itself. So it's been a win-win situation overall. I'd like to thank our guest, longtime diver Rob Blesser. Rob, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. All right. You're welcome. And thanks for checking in with us. We appreciate it. Absolutely.
<laughs> All right, bye-bye. We're talking about the 20-year anniversary of when the Spiegel Grove was sunk on purpose to create a new coral reef for divers. You can check out more of that anniversary coverage on our social media at WLRN. And that's Sundown for Monday, May 23rd. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovalle is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Leprecohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. And our engineer behind all of the buttons today is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band, Palo, at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. We're talking about the latest news from Latin America with WLRN's Tim Pageant. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. The program is made possible in part by support from the Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.